But uh, without beating around the bush, let's get on started. Uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If I don't drop my phone. <laughs> uh, the reason I have my phone with me this morning, uh, just so you know, uh, I have my pad of notes here, but the very top page got ripped off. And so I had, and my wife found it in the car, and so she texted me a picture of it. So the very first picture is on my phone. <laughs> so you gotta, you gotta make do, right? Yeah. But uh, we're gonna be in First Thessalonians chapter five, the very first verse. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your goodness and your mercy. And Lord, I just thank you for this church. This is so wonderful. We were both very much looking forward to being here this morning. And I just ask that you would, Holy Spirit, sit with us, talk with us, that we can learn something this morning, that we leave here changed, not just walk out the doors and say, well, that was fun. They seem a little nutty, but that was a good time. But let us grow closer to you. And we just thank you and we praise you. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get a little started in here, we got to have a little bit of a background. So a few years back, Lifeway Research did a survey asking Christians the question, when do you think the rapture will take place? In other words, when do you think the Lord will come and get his church? When do you think this will happen? Of the people surveyed, 36% believed in a pre-tribulation rapture catching away. They think it's going to happen before the tribulation that we kind of read about in Revelation. 4% believed in a mid-trib. They think it's going to happen in the middle. Uh, 18% believed in a post-tribulation. They think it's going to happen after the fact. 13% had other views of when that did not match up with the main three. 4% just plain weren't sure. And a whopping 25%, one in four people, did not believe in a literal rapture. They did not believe in a literal catching away of the church where Jesus comes and takes his, his church away. And don't worry, we're not going to be talking about that this morning. Because I've noticed that there's so much debate on when this is going to take place that nobody seems to ask the question, why? What is the... Yeah, I know, why? Don't mean to embarrass you, but um, yeah, it's just so much debate. We've argued for centuries about when this is going to happen that it seems like we've lost the importance of why it is such a thing to even argue about in the first place. And I think the timing is not nearly as important as to the, the point in general. And so that's actually what we're going to get into this morning, figuring out why the rapture is important and what is the significance of it. So once again, a little bit more background. So, I know this is going to be a shock to everybody, but Jesus was a Jew. Okay, I'm glad some of you laughed. Yes, that was a joke. At least it was until I found out some people are trying to say he wasn't. But anyway, more importantly, he wasn't just a Jew. He was a Galilean Jew. And Galilean Jews were a little bit different compared to the normal Judean ones. They had many of the similar customs and cultures 
But Galilee had a little bit of their own twist on things. For example, most of the Jews in Judea counted time from sunset to sunset. So around 6 o'clock, they counted that as our midnight. Well, Galilean Jews counted it from sunrise to sunrise. So a little similar, but a little bit of a twist to it. And we can see that throughout the Gospels, Jesus used the customs, the culture, the traditions of the people to show them spiritual matters. For example, whenever he was calling his first disciples of Peter, Andrew, James, and John, he said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? Because they were fishermen. That would make no sense to me. Now, if he said, come and I will make you the computer technician of the Lord, I would be all for that. <laughs> or back home in West Virginia, if he'd say, come and I will make you a hunter of people for the Lord, they, them mountain people, they'd be all for that one. So he used things that people were familiar with to show spiritual matters. And actually, two-thirds of the gospel happened in the Galilean region. So, would you believe it if I told you that the coming of the Lord to take his, his church, the rapture, the catching away, is seen and is mirrored and is foreshadowed in the Galilean-style wedding? All right? Well, let's just get started and let's just see. So let's go back all the way to around 30-some AD, and let's see what would take place at a wedding in Galilee. So, a wedding would be the most important event of any town for anyone. As news spread of the betrothal, everybody who was able to would run to the main gates to see the exchange of the vows. Well, why the main gates? That's kind of interesting. Well, you see, the main gates was where the elders sat, and they were the important people. They were the ones who would sit down at the gates and ratify different laws. It's very much like our Congress or our Capitol. They would just sit around and make up these different rules. And we can see an example of this in Ruth chapter 4, when Boaz wanted to marry Ruth, but someone was a little bit more eligible than he was. So what does he do? He gathers everybody together and says, let's go to the main gates and let's figure this thing out. And so that's why the main gates were important. And so they wanted everybody to come and see these exchanges. They wanted everybody to see the vows because they wanted witnesses. They wanted their friends. They wanted their family. They wanted that random person down the street. They wanted that person who just walked in that nobody knows who they are because they wanted people to see the exchange of these vows. Now, once everybody was in place, a written proposal of marriage, a contract, covenant, whatever you'd like to call it, was then read and presented to the couple. And then they were asked if they agreed to these terms. Now, this was not like our vows. I just actually recently, last week, married my best friend to his fiance. So it wasn't like that, where we say, oh, I promise to have you and to hold you and to love you and to cook for you and bake for you. No, no, it wasn't really like that. It was more on the lines of a legal agreement of, this is your job, this is your job, do you agree to these terms? It's kind of similar to when we update our phones and then it flashes and says the user agreements have changed, please read and agree to these terms and conditions, and everybody says they agreed and nobody read them. Well, this is very similar to how this is. Now, I was talking to a professor of uh, Jewish cultures, and she said, now there was some, you know, they weren't totally cold-hearted. They did have, I give you my yesterday, my today, and forever. But the majority of it was, this is your job, this is your job. And once they agreed to this, there was no going back. 
months down the line, they couldn't say, well, I didn't agree to that. I'm not washing your stinking laundry and socks. Well, yeah, you did agree to it in front of God and everybody. So there's no going back once they agreed. And so once they agreed and after the agreement, gifts were exchanged between the families. And this is when the dowry would be presented to the bride's father. Now, as opposed to other Middle Eastern cultures, where the dowry was more of a payment for the bride, as if she was some kind of property-ish, the dowry in the Galilean, yes, it served as a payment for the bride, but it also served as an insurance policy that if anything were to happen to the groom, the bride would be taken care of for the rest of her life. So another little interesting twist to the Galileans. Now, then the final moments that sealed everything. The groom was handed a pitcher of wine and a cup. And he pours the wine into the cup, then that he will then offer to his beloved. And this was called the cup of joy. So what he would do is he would take both hands and he would fearfully and respectfully pass the cup to his bride. Now, once the bride had the cup, she now had all power and authority to either accept the groom and drink the cup or shove it back at him and say no and the wedding stops. As opposed to, once again, other Middle Eastern cultures where the bride really didn't have much of a say. It was more the lines of, you're marrying him, whether you want to or not, the family needs this, get over yourself. <laughs> In Galilee, the bride had all authority to either accept or reject her groom. The wedding could not be completed without her willingness to drink of the cup and accept her groom. Now, once she drinks, she will then hand the cup back to the groom, and then he will drink from the cup, and it would solidify their new covenant together. Then he would say something really interesting. He would say, you are now consecrated to me by the laws of Moses, and I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it new with you in my father's house. Sound familiar? In Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus was presenting the bread and the wine at the Last Supper, he said these very same words, saying, I will not drink of this cup until I drink it new with you in my father's house. And so his disciples would have heard one thing, wedding. Peter, who we know was married, would have heard the very same words that he would have said to his bride on his wedding day. But more on this later. Now the betrothal ceremony is finished, and everybody's happy and excited and celebrating, but this is only the beginning. Now they will have to go their separate ways and live apart from each other until the wedding feast. You see, technically, they're married, but it's not like our full-blown marriages. It's a little bit more than our engagements, but a little bit less than I now pronounce you man and wife that we do today. Fun little fact, this was actually the stage that Mary and Joseph were in when Mary was to be found with Jesus. So fun little fact there. So they will have to live apart and take their separate ways. They will not have any communication or contact with each other for over about a year. Not so much as seeing each other, talking to each other, hugging each other, sending letters. Not so much, is that her over there? No, nothing. And they will have to make preparations for the full-blown wedding feast. The groom 
will be responsible for all the preparations that are to take place when he is to be reunited with his bride. Over the months, he will require new materials and furniture and everything he would need to build onto his father's house. And he would get the furnitures, the tables, the stools, the wallpapers, the carpets. We can modernize it. It's okay. And he would all do this and make a place for his bride. Sound familiar? This kind of parallels what Jesus said in John 14 when he says, You believe in God, you believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. A Galilean would have noticed and seen that this was a bridegroom talking to his bride. We're going to pick on Peter again. He would have heard the very same words that he would have said to his bride. Honey, I'm leaving, but I'm going to make a place for you so that we can be together again. And we can actually see that Jesus here is the one who introduces the idea of a rapture. It wasn't Paul in 1 Thessalonians that, he, that brought this into it. It was Jesus. Paul just explained it more. But Jesus was the one who introduced the idea of saying, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back to get you. So kind of interesting there. So, until the bride and the groom can be together again, there are a lot of preparations that needs to take place. And the bride has her job to do as well. <clears throat> She must prepare for the hour that her groom is to come and get her. She will spend the next year preparing. She'll go out and find merchants. She'll wait for merchants. She'll buy linens, silks, fabrics, and all other kinds of odds and ends. And she will make her wedding dress, as well as help her bridesmaids make their dresses as well. And once she makes her wedding dress, she will have to stay vigilant and pure while she waited for her groom to come and get her, no matter how long it took. In fact, she was to always be ready for when her groom was to come and get her. So she would wear her wedding dress after she made it, every day. Because here's the kicker, she had no idea when her groom was going to come and get her. It was to be the biggest surprise of her life. And so, therefore, she wore her dress every day. Let me ask you something. What happens when you wear something every day? It gets nasty, doesn't it? Yeah, it gets real nasty. She would be in a constant state of washing, mending, tailoring her dress to make sure she stayed as radiant, as pure, as beautiful as possible for the day when her groom would come and get her. All the while, the groom is making preparations at the father's house. Now, in Galilee, typically around a year would pass while the preparations were being made for the wedding feast. And we talked about how the bride had no idea when the groom would come and get her. <laughs> but here's the real kicker. The groom didn't even know when he was going to go get his bride. In fact, no one in the entire town knew when these two would be together again, except for one person, the groom's father, the one who read the contract at the gates, the one who paid the dowry price. He was the only one who knew when the groom and the bride would be together again. Interesting. 
How, when the disciples asked Jesus, when are you coming? This is the Stephen translation, so excuse me. When are you coming? What's it going to be like? He says, guys, you don't get it. Nobody knows. Not the angels in heaven. Not the Son. But only the Father knows when I'm coming back. Kind of interesting. You see, all other areas in the Middle East usually had a designated day. Yes, around a year would pass, but then they'd say, oh, well, do it on a Tuesday or Wednesday. That, that'd be fine. No, in Galilee, it was to be the biggest surprise of the whole town. So, what would happen? The groom would finish up everything, and he would go to his father and say, Father, I'm done. And as a formality, he would take the father through the, through the house, the addition, and he'd say, Look, Father, I plastered the walls. I added some beautiful purple carpet because she loves purple. I got a big flat screen 55-inch TV that she can sit back and watch whatever kind of show she wants. I got a big old recliner that just kicks back and relaxes. Like I said, we can modernize it. It's okay. And the father would go around and he'd say, Oh, yes, the plaster, that looks very nice. Oh, what a terrible shade of purple. Okay, that's fine. Um, oh, yes, the TV, that's a good brand. Oh, that recliner, you know, I'm going to have to come over myself and sleep on it, you know? And he would say, can I get my bride now? And his simple response would be, I'll tell you when. And that is exactly how he would respond for the next weeks, while the groom is anxiously waiting to come and get his bride. All the while, the bride is waiting and ready and excited. Now, Jesus said in Revelation 16, 15, I come as a thief. And we read earlier in the scripture that it says that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. This was the big twist, the big reveal of the Galilean wedding. The groom was to come for his bride in the middle of the night. While the entire town slept and slumbered, while the bride slept in her wedding dress, by the way, <laughs> with her bridesmaids sleeping over, because they didn't know when it was going to happen, while everybody who had an active part in the wedding and who were invited were sleeping and slumbering, anywhere from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the morning, the father would kick his son awake and say, it's time, go get your bride. And I don't know about you, but anywhere from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the morning, it may take me a little bit to wake up. But as soon as he got his faculties about him, the groom would wake up, jump up, and grab a shofar trumpet, a ram's horn trumpet, and blast it as loud as he could to wake up the entire town, more importantly, to wake up the bride. Now, once the bride would hear the blast and hear that the bridegroom cometh, doesn't that sound familiar? She would then have to execute her preparedness. It would do her no good if she spent all this time preparing and dreaming and wondering and having the dress and wonder, getting all ready, that if the trumpet sounded and she heard that the groom's coming to get her and she just turns over and says, oh, please hit the snooze. <laughs> or of those, we remember those fire drills that they made us do in school. It would do us no good if we practiced those fire drills. And then when the real fire happened, we say, I've got to finish this test. So, she would jump up, 
She would dust herself off. She would get her bridesmaids ready. All the while, the groom is making his way to the bride, parading down the streets, blasting the trumpet, waking up God and everybody. And everybody who had an active part in the wedding would join in the parade to the bride's house. And then, once they finally got there, the bride and her bridesmaids would be standing there, ready and waiting. Remember, they had no contact for over a year, not so much as of how do you do. And now, they will finally be together again, never to be separated again. Now, interestingly, the bride won't walk with the groom back to the father's house. In fact, the groomsmen had a special seat that they would present to the bride, and she would sit on it, and they would lift her up and carry her on their shoulders back to the father's house. This was referred to as flying the bride back to the father's house. And she is taken of no effort on her own. Interesting how this kind of parallels a few verses up above what we read this morning where it says in verse 16 of chapter 4, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Interesting how there's shouting. I'm sure there's a lot of shouting going on. There's a trumpet. And the church is caught up, is lifted up, to meet the Lord and flown back to the Father's house. I don't know about you, but that's a little too on the nose for me. That's a little too much for just be a coincidence. And so after the bride is flown to the Father's house, the conclusion begins and the wedding feast starts. Joined by all the ones who were called and ready in the middle of the night. Revelation 19.9 says, Blessed are the ones who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the feast lasted for seven days. They knew how to party back then. And once the feast starts and the doors to the father's house were shut, ain't no one getting in and ain't no one getting out until after the feast is concluded. So, I can just, it's just, I can just hear when the disciples were talking to Jesus, saying, hey, What's it going to be like when you come and get us? What is it going to be like when you come and you're coming? And I can just hear Jesus say, guys, you don't, you don't get it. You have been a part of it your whole lives. You have done the dress rehearsals your whole lives. We know that Jesus was accustomed to weddings. His first miracle was at a wedding in Canaan where he turned the water into wine. He was a part of the ones who were called in the middle of the night and joined the procession. So I can hear Jesus saying that you have been a part of the, the, uh, the dress rehearsal, the, the practice run all your lives. And, you know, something interesting, I was thinking about this a while back. It's, you know, where did we get this idea that the church was the bride of Christ? Because I kind of looked into it and Jesus never directly calls the church his bride. I mean, yes, he says a few parables that include weddings, but he never directly calls the church his bride. He says, my church, my church, my church. 
But then we get into the apostles and the epistles, the writings of the apostles, and then they start saying things like, make sure your wedding garments are spotless without wrinkle. We need to be a bride, a groom, a bride prepared for her groom. And then Revelation says, blessed are the ones who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, being Christ. And I thought, where in the world did they get this idea from? And then it kind of hit me. I think they got it. When Jesus starts making these subtle hints of, I go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back and get you. Or, I'm not going to drink this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my father's house. I think that clicked with them, and they realized this is a groom talking to his bride. So that is the importance of the rapture. It's not about, as some people say, some kind of escapism. It's not about, oh, we're getting out of here because it's getting to heck in a handbasket out there. No, it's about the bride and the groom being reunited again. Where Jesus said, I'm going away, but I'm coming back to get you. The rapture, the whole point of the rapture is Jesus being reunited with us, his bride. Going back to the way it was supposed to be in Adam and Eve and Eden that got messed up and screwed up to where we were no longer unified with God. That is the point of the rapture for the church to come back together with God, with Christ. And so now the question is this morning, are we ready? The bride had to be in a constant state of readiness because she had no idea when her groom was coming to get her. And we are the bride of Christ. We need to be in a constant state of ready for when Jesus comes to get us. You know, something interesting. Everybody in that whole town knew that she was a bride. I mean, it's kind of hard to miss when someone's walking around in a wedding dress. And so the question now, do people see us and see that we are married to Jesus? I've always said the worst insult that a Christian could ever receive is, oh, you're a Christian? I had no idea. We need to make sure that we're living in such a way that when Jesus comes back, as the Bible says, that we will not be ashamed at his coming. And so this morning I want to challenge you to examine ourselves, myself included. Are we ready for Jesus to come? If that trumpet were to blast right now, would we go? Would we, would we, will we be ready? I heard a preacher say one time, a statistic, he said, he believed that when the trumpet sounded, 85% of the church would still be here. And from what I've seen with all this mess that's going on and everybody's just falling off by the wayside, I think he was generous. So we need to make sure we're ready. Because here's the real kicker. The rapture ain't the only way we could go. We're not even promised tomorrow. Me and Mama may not even make it home today. And so it's important to make sure that we're ready now. And so as Mama begins to play, I want to invite anybody up who needs prayer, whether to get saved or really get serious with God, to come. And we'll pray together and we'll make sure that you can leave here knowing that when the bridegroom comes, 
you'll be a bride ready and waiting. Or if you just need prayer about something in general, we can pray because the Lord still answers prayer. He is still interested in your life. He loves you and he is interested in what is going on in your life. So, page 307. 